Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Makers, you said that you would be open to signing just about any immigration deal that that bipartisan group of lawmakers sent to you. Right. Would you be willing to sign an immigration deal that ultimately does not include funding for the border wall, or would that be a red no. line for you? No. No. No? It's got to include the wall. We need the wall for security. We need the wall for safety. We need the wall for stopping the drugs from pouring in. Uh, I would imagine that the people in the room, both Democrat and Republican, uh, I really believe they're going to come up with a solution to the DACA problem, which has been going on for a long time, and maybe beyond that immigration as a whole. But any solution has to include the wall, because without the wall, it all doesn't work. Without the wall, it all doesn't work. Buck Sexton here. Thank you so much for joining me in the Freedom Hut. My friends, colleagues, fellow patriots, good to have you with me as always. That was President Trump earlier today. You will note, I, I hope, that some yesterday were, were throwing up the panic flag a little bit because the president had that very interesting immigration meeting with members of Congress that was televised. We could see the give and take of the legislative debate process in action. People were worried because the president said it needs to be a bill of love and he would be willing to take the heat. But today, he's saying there has to be a wall. And you know what? If the president gets that wall, think think about the message that that's going to send to the base, to the Democrats, to the left, everybody. It's going to show a president who follows through on not just some promises, but core promises, central, central to his platform, to his agenda and Wow, that would be uh, rocket fuel for the rest of the Trump term or terms, uh, as I see it. It would be phenomenal if he managed to get that. So I think we should take some degree of reassurance from the president's statements today. Very clear. I don't know how he could be more clear about how we're going to have a wall. One thing I also thought was interesting about yesterday, didn't really get enough attention, in my opinion. Uh, And that is not only did the president show, and and I said this on the show yesterday, but show us that it's on Congress, right? They have to put something in front of him to sign. And if they come up with nothing, it, it can't be, oh, the president didn't lead or whatever. He has said what the key points are of an immigration deal. He has made it very straightforward in terms of what he wants. And now Congress has to get it done. And he says he will sign it. But there was a secondary purpose that did not get nearly enough, I think, play. Some perhaps caught on a bit later in the game. And I just wanted to take a take a mulligan, take another another shot at this one. Uh, Jake Tapper, even over at CNN. 
If you're wondering if pushing aside those concerns was at least partly the point of these on-camera negotiations for the bill of love, you're not being cynical, you're being correct. And in fact, the Republican National Committee Rapid Response Director sent out this take on the meeting, quote, many in the media have spent the last week hyperventilating over a phony writer's opinions, but the American people just witnessed President Trump lead arguably the most transparent, substantive policy discussion with Congress maybe ever. This is a very important, that was Tapper at CNN, and just because Tapper says it doesn't mean it's wrong. He actually was, the, he made his name, I will remind you. I mean, now he does a lot of a lot of CNN's bidding and a lot of anti-Trump stuff. I'm very clear on that. But he made his name back, I think, when he was an ABC reporter by just occasionally asking President Obama's White House press secretary or Obama himself a real question. Not, how does it feel to be the smartest person in the history of the world, the most amazing, the most moral, the most handsome, the most perfect? He would actually ask occasionally. I'm not saying a lot, you know. It was once in a while, but he would ask a real question. Oh, Jake Tapper, how could you? But his point there is worth noting. Or he's really actually illustrating or highlighting a point that somebody else made. And that is one of the effects of yesterday. And look, this that was a, a Trump administration decision, right? To to televise it in that way, to show to bring us into the discussion, to bring the American people into the thick of the immigration debate with the members of Congress there. We're seeing what they're saying. We're seeing the questions. We're seeing it in real time. Not only did it give us a particular window into what is among the most important policy issues facing this country, it is really an existential issue for the United States of America in the long term. Forget climate change, this other stuff. Oh, it's a huge threat. Immigration, if we don't get this right, the country changes and not for the better forever. Those are the stakes right now of the immigration discussion and debate. But the secondary component of it was that Trump uh, Trump was able to smack down this Michael Wolf fire and fury book as an aside. There's a book. Uh, from the Second World War, I believe, called Fire and Fury that has shot up to the top of the bestseller list because people are buying that book. <laughs> it just happens to be called Fire and Fury. That guy's got to be psyched, right? Uh, that's that's great. You know, All of a sudden, the book was published like a decade ago. People are like, I need Fire and Fury. It's, you know, something about uh, some, um, might even be a great book. I have no idea, but I think it's Battles from the Second World War. Uh, but by... Having the press conference, letting the American people see how does Trump interact with members of Congress? How does he run that kind of a meeting? How does he handle that give and take of debate and discussion? Any honest person would see that and say to themselves, uh, hold on a second. This is the president who's crazy. This is the president who can't string a, string together a sentence. This is the president who... It has no ideas and has no leadership and has, I mean, all the stuff that's in there, right? Is sloppy, insane, senile, all these things. I mean, all this just junk they're trying to pile on Trump. You watched that meeting yesterday, and not only did you see what's going on with the immigration policy debate, but you saw the president of the United States in action in a way that just blows to smithereens this whole narrative of the book, Fire and Fury. So it was a twofer. It was a double whammy. This is what Trump has to do. This is what this administration must continue to do. And that is to get around 
or defeat the naysayers, yes, as Trump puts it, the haters, the liars, the fake news, all of that with success, with results. The economy already is, and you see it with all these different metrics, and you've got titans of industry and many of the smartest people on Wall Street, in the manufacturing sector, in the entrepreneurial world, they're all saying, look, I don't even like Trump. I don't even like Trump's policies on X, Y, or Z outside of the economy. Right? Maybe they disagree with them on this or that. But, on the, but when it comes to economic optimism and the markets and hiring and wages, and which was also central, all of that was central to the Trump message, which is that the, for, you know, the forgotten men and women of this country in these different sectors competing with offshoring of jobs, competing with the importation of cheap, illegal foreign labor, all of that, stagnant wages and a sense that you can't get ahead. Trump is so far following through on those promises and doing it with results, not just words, not just a lot of. You know, a lot of jaw-jaw, a lot of, you know, yada-da, talking about stuff. No, Trump is making it happen. This is why I, I don't get too spun up. I don't get, we used to say, uh, people would say the bureaucracies, you know, it gives me heartburn. Um, I, I, but I don't get over-anxious. Uh, over I don't get upset. I don't get wrapped around the axle when Trump tweets something that I'm like, well, I don't really know what he's, I, I wouldn't have done that, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And also all these people who have been so desperate to make you think that it matters in the media and elsewhere, maybe they're your neighbors, maybe they're people you see at work or the people you see on TV, they're wrong. They've been wrong so far. And it's one of the reasons that I think we've we've begun to see a phenomenon that will continue to play out, which is that the more this is crazy, I know, but just stay with me on it. The more successful this presidency is. And I don't mean in rhetorical terms. I don't mean in slapping down the fake news as much as I love that. And it is a fantastic spectator sport. And I try to do my fair share of buck slaps here as well. I try to you know, make sure that we hold these different media entities to account and uh, give them a free ride on the school bus once in a while. But the more successful Trump is, the more they will hate him. Because the more successful he is, the more obvious it becomes to anybody who has had any doubts that they've been lying about this administration, they've been stacking the deck against him, they've been doing everything in their power to prevent the very successes that are just beginning, just beginning to become irrefutable. Strong market, strong economy. Regula- I'm going to talk to you about regulations later in the show. People are becoming believers. You know, and, and it's kind of amazing that it's taken this long, in a sense, because the regulatory environment of the Obama administration was in. You want to talk about insanity? It was insane. And, you know, whether you agree with Trump or not, whether you, you know, whether you're somebody that likes the tweeting, hates the tweeting, if you're trying to run a small business and all of a sudden you don't have to spend dozens of hours and thousands or tens of thousands of dollars complying with with completely bizarre, useless, onerous federal regulations, you start to think maybe this Trump guy is onto something. Maybe he's got something going here. It is all about results. It's all about doing things that benefit the American people. 
And what, as I said, it'll be amazing to watch it play out because the be- the more successful Trump is, the louder they'll scream about Russia, the louder they will yell about how he's uh, needs to be taken out of office by the Twenty Fifth Amendment. I mean, they they won't quit. They will not stop. And that's why the only response that Trump can and will have is the courage of his convictions and the implementation of an agenda that we're already seeing. It is already working. But immigration, immigration is key. And we can't take the pressure off, can't take the heat off here. The president set a wall today. I'm hearing things about a wall in, you know, within 10 years we'll have a few, 700 miles. Okay, I mean, let's, let's get the first 100 on the books ASAP. You know, I don't want this to be, yeah, we're going to have a wall, but by the time we have a wall, everybody's going to have a jet pack because then a wall won't, won't really be that useful. You know, if it's like the future of the Jetsons where people can fly around in little flying cars or jet packs or whatever they've got everywhere, a wall's not going to be as good. Okay, we can't wait 50 years for a wall. Need a wall to start now. So we'll talk more about that and also the uh, most, uh, I, you know, I can't even say it. It's tough with superlatives because the left is so dishonest, unfair, and crazy, particularly when it comes to dealing with this White House and dealing with the Republican Party right now, that to say it's the craziest judicial decision ever or the craziest judicial decision ever under Trump, I mean, I'm not sure, but it's close. It's close to the worst court decisions. Mandating a a federal judge in California has... This just came out today. I read the first thing I did this morning. It's probably why I threw my neck out. I was so annoyed. I did. I've my neck is killing me right now. Uh, but first thing I did today, and I, I'm not to lie, I did it in bed. I read through on my phone. 49 pages of a decision from a circuit court judge in California where the short version, I'll get into a longer version with you in, in a few minutes because it's worth exploring a little bit. But the short ver- version is uh, one judge thinks that he can usurp the executive branch chief's prerogative, can essentially tell him how to use his discretion. Some judge in California is telling Trump, this is your call and this is how you're going to make the call when it comes to immigration, specifically to uh, DACA. I'll work, I'll talk you through, we'll go through the details. It's important to know, but it's just hashtag resistance, uh, resistance, pardon me, hashtag resistance, never Trump nonsense from yet another judge out on the left coast. We'll get into that packed show today my friends a lot i want to talk to you about but also want to hear from you too of course 844-900-2825-844-900 buck i'll be right back their instances look at what happened in israel they put up the wall they say it solved a very major problem we need the wall we have to have the wall for security purposes security is number one and uh, so the answer is have to have the wall thank you have to have the wall. President's making it very clear. Buck Sexton back with you here on the Buck Sexton Show. Uh, wanted to take some of your calls uh, before we get our next guest coming up, who's going to be the acting director of Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. We got him joining us on the show. Director uh, Homan will be with us, Thomas Homan, and can tell us about what's the reality right now of illegal immigrant crossing into the country, uh, crossings in the country, also workplace enforcement, bunch of raids at 7-Elevens across the country. You got the guy at the top of the Immigrations and Customs Enforcement Agency of the United States to join us here in just a few minutes to address that. So he'll give us a real view of what's 
what's the ground truth of all this, right? What's really happening out there? So we can factor that in when we're talking about Trump and immigration, everything he's doing. But he noted there with Israel that that also came from a press conference or some questions with the press were able to pose earlier today. And yeah, Israel, I mean, I, I remembered I was actually spending a lot of time studying uh, Israel and Israeli-Palestinian issues at the time I was in school, but I had I had been working at a Mideast think tank and working on that issue specifically. It was very much front of mind. And Israel had a terrible time with suicide bombers uh, and other uh, Palestinian terrorists who were coming into the country and just wreaking havoc and carnage, and it was terrible. They built a wall, and it stopped. It just, I mean, I'm not saying that that was the only thing, Israel has a tremendous security service beyond just the wall, right? But no one's saying the wall would be the only thing either. But it helped a whole heck of a lot. Uh, We'll talk to our acting immigration and customs enforcement uh, head in just a few moments here. So stay with me for that. Tim in Ohio. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Listen, first, before we get to immigration, I want to tell you a few comments about your uh, Shields High episode. Oh, sure. I played uh, Charles Mantell in the Dana podcast for the uh, the guys in the shop at work the other day, and everybody loved it. We had a we got a we got an Afghan vet and an Iraq vet, and uh, everybody loved it there. So uh, my question is, though, well, thank you. We coming out. The next one's coming out on Monday. Monday, 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 oh, okay. my friend. This Monday, next Monday. Get okay. into it. You got to subscribe. iTunes. Oh, well, yeah. I'm, we're listening. <laughs> no, <laughs> I appreciate it. But, I, I had to throw a plug in there, Tim. You know how it goes. Oh, we lost Tim. What happened? We're having so much fun with Tim. And he, I, we didn't drop him, did we? You guys just felt like he was saying too many nice things. You just didn't want me to get a swelled head. I know how it is. You know, I, I do my little history podcast. It starts blowing up. All of a sudden, everyone's like, hey, keep your feet on the ground, Sexton. No, sorry. I don't know what happened there. Uh, apologies, Tim from Ohio. We just lost you there for a second. And in Virginia, we got about a minute, but we want to get you in. What's up, Ann? Good evening, Mr. Sexton. As I wait with palpitating heart and gasping breath for your show every night, wow. um, I just have to tell you that your intro is fabulous. You know, it's timeless. It works all the time. Oh, the show intro for this show. Okay, cool. Yeah. You know, you know, I can tell you this. I actually, I actually built that show intro myself. I'm serious. Yeah. I'm a man of many talents, Anne, but thank you for all your support of the show and Shields High. Thank you so <laughs> thank much. You. Thank you, Anne. Appreciate Bye-bye. it. Bye-bye. Um, so, there we have it. Uh, we've got, to, like I said, we're going to talk more about immigration. What is the state of legal immigration into the country right now? Can we enforce... Certain aspects of the law, well, the answer is yes, obviously, much better than we do. I've also got this decision from a court out in California. I read through, I don't know how many other hosts on TV or radio could say this, but I I read through the entire thing because I do my own stuff. I read it all. I'll tell you about it. It is is a giant, steaming, triceratops-sized pile of poop. It is terrible. It is the worst legal analysis you will see out of California in a long time. We'll get into that, so uh, stay with me. Immigration top of 
the uh, news cycle today, and we're very fortunate to be joined by acting ICE director Thomas uh, Homan, who is with us now on the line. Thomas, thank you so much for calling in. Thank you for having me, sir. Uh, first, all right, talk to me a bit about your uh, your reaction to this court ruling that's effectively telling the Trump administration that they have to act a certain way when it comes to presidential discretion. Look, there's there's so many liberal court rulings out there right now that uh, hamper what we're trying to do. I mean, I got court rulings out there that don't let me remove people that committed serious crimes in this country. I got court rulings that tell me how long I can detain somebody. I mean, this is when when this whole docket discussion discussion started. We sent a list of policy and legislative changes up on the hill. There can't be a clean docket bill. We need fix. We need to fix this system, or we're going to have a docket discussion ten years from now. Let's finally fix this system. Overturn some of these judicial decisions. And, and, and make sense of what we're doing. I uh, used the analogy a few minutes ago on another interview. You know, we, you, if you got a leaky tire, you can put air in that tire every day, or you can fix the tire. Let's fix this tire. Let's finally fix immigration. This president, under his leadership, we got a, we had a 45-year low in illegal Im, immigration crossings. We're on the right trail. Let us let us fix this. Let us make these changes to fix the problem once and for all. So, you know, if, if, if you want to have a DACA deal, then you got to fix underlying problems with it. We can't do a clean DACA deal. We, we need a wall. We need interior enforcement. We need to be able to remove people that have violated the laws of this country. We need some of these court decisions overturned. We need to be able to do our job and protect this country. Tell me about these. Uh, you're the acting director of Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. Uh, what were these raids? What what happened here? There's some reporting today about 7-Elevens nationwide uh, targeted in anti-illegal immigration employment raids. Well, like I said, when I became a director, I, I gave a commitment. We're going to we're going to step up worksite enforcement. It's against the law to hire an illegal alien to work, uh, and it's it's, a, it's an enticement to further illegal immigration. People, you know, they're going if they're lucky enough to get by the border patrol, they're coming here to work. They're coming here to make money. They're coming here to you know be with family. We got to take that magnet away. It's against the law to hire illegal aliens. And we're going to enforce that law. I've asked for a 400 percent increase in those investigations this year. This is a nationwide investigation. We're going to hit small companies. We're hit big companies, going to hit medium-sized companies. We're going to enforce the law. We need to, we need to remove that magnet that just entices more illegal immigration. More people will die to try to come to this country and work. More border patrol agents be put at risk. More of my officers put at risk for illegal immigration. This is one piece of the puzzle that we have to fix to, to, to really fix the border problem and secure that border. Director Holman, is the Trump administration committed to E-Verify as part of the package for this immigration negotiation currently? And what can you tell us about the effectiveness of E-Verify. Well, look, I, I, I know the part of our policy uh, request, you know, there was a story a few weeks ago, you know, uh, myself, the Border Patrol, and CBP, and CIS got together, and we put a list of po- po- policy objectives and legislative objectives. We sent them up to the Hill in their discussions on DACA, saying these are things we need to fix the system with. And there's a story that, that thing came from the White House. No, no, this comes from career law enforcement officers. I've been doing this 34 years. This was my list. This was the head of the CBP's list. We sent these up there, and E-Verify is one of them. Look, E-Verify does work. And, and and it should be required. So I don't know what's going, what they're going to decide up in Hill. Again, I'm a law enforcement agency. I'm going to enforce the laws they enact, and I'll stop enforcing laws they repeal. But I'm hoping that everybody agrees illegal immigration is a problem. We have three career law enforcement officers who have told you what the loopholes are, where the shortages are, what we can fix to end this. 
I hope they take it seriously and fix this once and for all. I was I I, I was here in 1986 during the last IRC and the amnesty, and they promised you know serious worksite enforcement then, but we never got the resources, the authorities to do it. We're saying right now, if we're talking about any discussion on DACA, let's have a serious discussion how we fix this problem once and for all. And that's what we sent up there. And E-Verify was on a list of things we sent up there we wanted to consider. We're speaking to Acting Immigrations and Customs Enforcement Director Thomas Homan. Uh, Director Director Homan, tell me about the current state of illegal crossings. Because the New York Times just put out a piece saying that, well, here's a quote, shelters along the southern border are filling up. Immigration lawyers in the region say caseloads are spiking. And across the southwest, border officers are stopping more than 1,000 people a day. Is there a surge right now? What's going on? The the, the numbers of family, first of all, the the overall numbers are down, but there is uh, an increase, recent increase in the number of family units and unaccompanied children. And there's a reason for that. You know, again, we have asked for changes in law. The TVPRA is a Trafficking Victim Protection Act. Is, I think it was from 2008. It, it followed the Homeland Security Bill 2002. And if, if, if you're an unaccompanied child under age 18, and you, or you are, if you're from Mexico or Canada, once we determine you're not a victim of trafficking, we can remove them to these countries. However, the TVPRA makes it impossible for us to remove children to, like, Central America, Honduras, uh, Salvador, Guatemala, where most of these kids are coming from. So that's one of the things we sent to the Hill a few weeks ago. Fix the TVPRA. It's being abused. It, it, it had a good intention, but it's being abused. And, and the loopholes in that system, these kids, once they get released to a parent or sponsor, they're in the win. And, and if they do show up in court, which many of them don't, uh, they get a court order. They're not going to leave. They go in the win. So we're asking for changes in, in that legislation to help. When, once we get those changes, you're going to see those numbers drop significantly. As far as the family units, that's another court decision. That's another decision on the Ninth Circuit and, and, and the Flores decision, settlement agreement, where they're telling us we can only hold uh, these family units for a certain period of time, less than three weeks. Well, look, if you're an illegal alien family, you're coming from Central America to come to the United States, if you know you can come get arrested, turn yourself over, get arrested and put in a facility for two weeks and get fed you know, three meals a day, get your vaccinations, get your physical, don't need to be released in the community. That's just a part of them doing business. That, you know, they're going to keep coming. So we've asked for, to, for a change in that, litig- in, to, in, in that judicial decision so we can hold these people. We remove people we detain. Once you do, release somebody, it's, you know, we don't need, they go in the wind. So these, those two instances, the two populations you see arise in the border, are specifically in response to bad court decisions and bad policy that we've asked Congress to look at both of these things and change them as soon as they can. One more for you, Director. There's a lot of debate right now about the wall. The president said today in no uncertain terms a wall would have to be part of a package when it comes to addressing immigration from a legislative perspective. Just tell me this. You are uh, currently overseeing thousands of agents from Immigration and Customs Enforcement. When you speak to the guys and, and men and women on the front lines here of enforcement, uh, are, are they convinced that a wall is a good idea? Are you convinced that a wall is a good idea? Because the media acts like a wall won't do anything. And I look around, I'm like, the history has a lot of walls that did a lot. Look, you know, I, I started my career in Border Patrol. I know a lot of Border Patrol agents, and, 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 of course, I have my own ICE agents. I can tell you from my own personal experience, I started my career in Border Patrol. I, I was in the San Diego sector back in 1984, 85, 86. And we were catching thousands of illegal aliens per shift down there in the soccer fields. It was out of control. As soon as they put a wall up, a barrier up, the, the, the numbers plummeted. Every place they put that wall, whether San Diego, El Paso, some places in, in Yuma, every place. 
place they built the wall, it was extremely successful. And you know what? During this, it, the, 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 the Border Securities Act, it was a bipartisan, bipartisan support. Everybody supported building this wall. So why would we not, since it's been successful in every place we put it, why would we not want the wall to protect public safety and national security? What price are you going to put on that? So for those people that want to you know, attack the wall, it's worked every place they put it. It's proven. It's got to come with other technologies and resources and stuff, you know, and, and but the wall works. I support the wall. Like we had a 45-year decline in, in illegal crossings this year, but everybody says well, they don't need the wall. No, because there's still people are going to come to this country. You know, a 45 de- uh, uh, percent decline is still there's still thousands of people coming in. We need the wall. It's worked. Let's do it. Let's put. Let's. What price are you going to put on the security of this country? This president came in here. He wants the wall. I support that. He's done. He's this president. I've worked for six different presidents. This president's done more for border security mm-hmm. and public safety than any of the six presidents I've worked for. I've been forcing immigration law for thirty-four years, and this this president, President Trump, has done more for the men and women of the Border Patrol, for the men and women of ICE, and for the citizens of this country and border security than any president I've ever worked for since 1984. Let's follow this plan. Let's get it fixed. Acting Immigrations and Customs Enforcement Director Thomas Homan. Uh, Director Homan, great to have you. Thank you so much, and come back soon. Thank you, sir. Uh, team, we are going to roll into a break. We've got a lot more to talk about today, including uh, the latest on immigration, Russia collusion, investigation, Regulation. I'm going to tell you some stories about regulation later on that are going to make your head spin. We're going to break it down into some real world, a real world example of just how crazy regulation is in this country and why it's so important that President Trump is, in fact, peeling them back and taking all of these ropes and constraints off of American businesses and American entrepreneurs. So we've got that and much more coming up. 844-900-2825. We'll be right back. Does this get in the administration's way of immigration reform? I don't think so. I mean, we are very disappointed by the decision. uh, But what we heard yesterday at the meeting was we're all committed to finding a deal. So a permanent solution is actually to the benefit of all the current DACA recipients. And that's what we'll pursue. Were those talks as productive as they they appeared to all of us who were let into that room with the TV cameras rolling. Yes, I think so. I'm very optimistic. We left with a clear path forward. We agreed on the four pillars, components of a deal. Uh, I'm very encouraged by what we did yesterday and look forward to continuing to meet with uh, our colleagues on the Hill day to day until we get this done. That was uh, Secretary of Homeland Security Kirsten Nielsen earlier today on DACA and the negotiations around it. Look, DACA is something that sounds like it might be a good bargaining chip, and then you get into what the long-term implications are, or even really just the real implications of DACA, and you're going to have some some big problems. But we'll we'll get back into that in a moment. I, I first wanted to spend some time setting up uh, this insane, absolutely crazy order from a judge in California. Anytime I'm going to say that on the show right there. So there's this judge in California who decided to get his hashtag resistance points uh, up on the board. And in this case, it's about this is from the Northern District of California decision. This is a preliminary injunction, mind you. But the injunction is from this judge saying that across. Think about this. One federal judge says across the country. The Trump administration now has to 
has to implement deferred action for childhood arrivals, DACA, across the country. One judge. The case is the regents of the University of California and Janet Napolitano. Hey, it's it's big sis Napolitano. I'm back. I used to be the secretary of Homeland Security. <clears throat> and now here I am running the California school system, bringing a suit against the Trump administration. Big sis. So she's. Uh, part of this lawsuit against the homeland against her former agency, Department of Homeland Security, isn't that isn't that what you call ironic? Uh, you've got Kirsten Nielsen, who we just played there, named as the defendant here, just because she runs DHS. And here's the basic uh, the basic argument of the the plaintiffs here that there are some people covered under DACA. In California, and there's some other states that also signed on to this, too. But we'll just focus on California because why not just beat up on California? Uh, there, are some, there are some people who are covered under DACA who are students or faculty, et cetera, et cetera, at the University of California school system, which is, which is vast. And they're saying that this is it, – it is unfair for Trump or, in this case, it is, it is illegal – for Trump and the Department of Homeland Security of the executive branch not to continue to give DACA protection to these individuals because it, it it's necessary for the because they're doing good things. I mean, I'm going to try to walk the, the argument really makes no sense, but I'll try to give you what they're saying. What they're really saying is this plaintiffs group from the department of or the regents of the university of california and big sis napolitano hello hey uh and then dhs what they're saying is daca is good for people that work or go to the california school system therefore for due process reasons you can't take away what's good for them and because because it hurts us it puts us at a, at a disadvantage because we need these daca people so badly who are now working for or going, I think it's primarily for some of the employees. But And this can get, there's a very complicated version of this case and a very simple version of this case. I think I just made it clear we should deal with the simple version first. Simple version is this. It's illegal for illegals to be in the country. The Obama administration decided that under the notion of prosecutorial authority, or prosecutorial discretion rather, under prosecutorial discretion, they were going to say, hey, you can stay here. And oh, by the way, that also means you can work. You can get work permits while you're here. And it's really an abuse of prosecutorial discretion because there is. A, and this is why the DAPA program. And I know we're getting a little in the weeds here, but it's important. Deferred action of parental arrival, or deferred action for parents of arrivals, whatever DAPA the parents of the DACA-covered individuals, which is the so-called dreamers. I don't like using that term because it's obviously it's it's obviously meant to influence the discussion just by using it, right? They're dreamers. They're just dreaming about a better place, a better America, right? I mean, no, they're people that want to be in the country because America is the best country with the best economy, et cetera, et cetera, and who are not legally allowed to be here. They're dreamers. Uh, 
but the the Obama administration decided to do that, and the Trump administration came in and said, "Hold on a second. Uh, we don't want to continue to do that. We, meaning the executive branch, are not going to use our discretion in that way. Therefore, these DACA protections will not continue." And what the what this one judge, a Clinton appointee, no no surprise there. What this one judge came out with today was, sorry, you have to use your discretion in that way. Now, to put it mildly and simply, that's not the judge's call. The judge is not in a position to make that call. This is not up to this judge. The judge is going way beyond his authority. But as we saw with uh, that federal judge in Hawaii in the Ninth Circuit, this is Fifth Circuit, then the Ninth Circuit, uh, oh, no, I'm sorry. No, this is Ninth Circuit, too. Um, as we saw with the judge out in Hawaii, though, who the Supreme Court had to slap down, you don't get to decide that you don't like Trump as a judge and you're just going to overrule federal government policy because you don't like Trump. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. And this decision from this judge in Northern California is just another instance of legislating from the bench, hashtag resistance judges coming out and ignoring what the law says because they have a policy preference. In this case, this judge knows you're going to be a hero in the state of California to a whole lot of people if you write the law or you make the law up as you go along to insist on DACA protections. It's very straightforward, though. The judge does not have the authority to do this. This would be the equivalent, okay, of a judge. It really is the equivalent of a judge saying, um, okay, this federal prosecutor chose not to press charges on this case. And then another federal prosecutor would come along in the same the same jurisdiction and say, no, no, I'm actually going to bring charges. And then the judge says, sorry, you can't do that. Why not? It's it's the, under the discretion of the prosecutorial wing of the Justice Department. It's not about whether, uh, but the judge says, oh, I don't like it. We'll, we'll talk about more of this coming up. Good morning and welcome to our first cabinet meeting of the new year. 2017 was a year of tremendous achievement, monumental achievement, actually. I don't think any administration has ever done, has done what we've done and what we've accomplished in its first year, which isn't quite finished yet. You never know what's going to happen over the next few days. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. President Trump talking about the achievements of 2017. And I've certainly been trying to highlight them on this show because a lot of shows, a lot of media won't do that. They'll tell you about Trump is, you know, Trump is this, he's that, he's senile, he's crazy, he's evil, whatever. In fact, 2017 on a policy basis was pretty darn good. Tax cuts are going to be great, already having really positive impact on the economy. And I think we're in for a whole lot more. But one of the things that happened in 2017 uh, that gets some attention, but not nearly enough, has to do with regulations, has to do with getting rid of the red tape. And it has been tremendous for the uh, for this country, for the economy. And this is directly in Trump's hands. This is one of the executive branch successes, one of the victories. And this is a victory for conservatives, 
for limited government and for the whole country, even the people who hate it and hate Trump. It's making things better for them, whether they whether they like it or not. The president is helping them out with his approach to reg- federal regulations because federal regulations have gotten completely out of control. And there's even uh, a term, a term of art for this now. Regulatory fatigue. Oh, do you have regulatory fatigue, sir? Oh, yes, I'm quite tired. Regulatory fatigue is when the regulations just pile up way, way too high. Now, this is kind of a, a, a conversation that could have a lot of jargon. I could give you the numbers. I mean, the numbers of Obama was just trying to build the Mount Olympus of regulations. I mean, just regulations up to the sky, up to the moon, as far as the eye can see and further, right? More regulations, the better. A hyperactive federal regulatory body is what the Democrat Party wants in this country. It's what Obama wanted. It's what Hillary Clinton would have wanted. Hello! If she were president of the United States. Why? Because she. it's at the heart of statism. People that want the state to be in control love regulation because it fits right in with their overall idea of governance, which is that people should be told what to do by, quote, experts. And by that, they really mean usually slothful bureaucrats, uh, but experts in every aspect of their day-to-day life. There is nothing, for, for a true progressive Democrat, there is nothing that is beyond the purview of the state when it comes to dictating behavior, uh, dictating your approach to everything in your day-to-day life. Decisions that you make, micromanaged, down to the most minute level. And it's no exaggeration. Let me give you an example here. What would be a, an American pastime? What would be an American business that you would think everyone could agree that the federal government could take a relatively light touch in regulating, right? What's a one one thing that might come to mind would be a lemonade stand. And sure enough, there are stories about, you know, a little eight year old girl is running a lemonade stand and the local, you know, better business commerce, whatever regulators come over and say, do you have a permit, young lady? No. You know, and they kick her off the street competing unfairly with local lemonade businesses. Right. I mean, but but I've got a I've got a better one for you or or I've got a specific one. And it actually comes from a courtesy of The New York Times from a few weeks ago. I don't think this got very much attention. One of the things I love to do here in the Freedom Hut is bring stories to your attention that aren't just that, you know, the headline, the biggest headline on foxnews.com, Drudge, sometimes CNN, although CNN is just one long, it's really now just turned into one long blog about the Russia collusion investigation. That's what CNN.com is. But here's this piece in the New York Times. Apple picking. How complicated, how complex could apple picking really be? And how much could federal regulations really hamper the business of letting people pay some money to grab some apples on their own? Beautiful fall day. It's big out here. I know some parts of the country probably don't have much of this, but, you know, out here on the East Coast, in the Northeast, you got a lot of this going on. Uh, So here's what the New York Times wrote on this. Quote, for eight weeks every fall... Indian Ladder Farms, a fifth-generation family operation near Albany, kicks into peak season. 
The farm sells homemade apple pies, fresh cider, and warm donuts. School children arrive by the busload to learn about growing apples. And as customers pick fruit from trees, workers fill bins with apples destined for the farm's shop and grocery stores. This fall, amid the rush of commerce, the apple harvest season accounts for about half of Indian Ladder's annual revenue. Federal investigators showed up. They wanted to check the farm's compliance with migrant labor rules and the Fair Labor Standards Act, which sets pay and other requirements for workers. Suddenly, the small office staff turned its focus away from making money to placating a government regulator. The investigators arrived on a Friday in late September and interviewed the farm's management and a group of laborers from Jamaica who have special work visas. The investigators hand-delivered a notice and said they would be back the following week when they asked to have 22 types of records available. The request included vehicle registrations, insurance documents, and timesheets, reams of paper in all. Over the next several days, the 10 Ike family, which owns the farm along with the staff, devoted about 40 hours to serving the investigators who visited three times before closing the books. It is terribly disruptive, said Peter Ten Eyck, who runs the farm along with his daughter and son. And the dimension that doesn't get mentioned is the psychological hit. They are there to find something wrong with you, and then they are going to find you. End quote. Uh, this is a this is a great example of how terrible some of the federal regulations in this country really are. I mean, this really brings it home, I think. You got a business in its peak. It's a very seasonal business, apple picking. Not a lot of apple picking. I'm a native you know, New Yorker. I've spent a, a lot of time. I have family uh, up in the Hudson Valley. I have a house up in the Hudson Valley. My grandparents spent their uh, summers up in the Hudson Valley. And... I'm pretty sure there's not a lot of apple picking going on in January. But if it's the peak season, they said it counts for half of this farm's revenue. I've been talking to you on this show about farmers and the plight of farmers. Trump spoke to farmers yesterday in or maybe the day before in Nashville. And federal regulations, reams of paper. We had Selena Zito come on. She's a author and a correspondent journalist. And she was saying that farmers have to fill out stacks and stacks and stacks of paperwork. I mean, I know farming is a really tough business, really hard to do. I know that, right? You deal with a lot of stuff that's beyond your control, seasonality, weather, all this. I can't, I would think, though, that one of the benefits is that it's a pretty self-sustaining thing and you're at least somewhat away from the reach of an overweening and semi-dictatorial Uncle Sam. But no. Farmers got a ton of paperwork. I'd be willing to bet now every small businessman and woman listening to this show right now is probably like, oh, Buck, let me tell you about dealing with OSHA, dealing with the FDA, dealing with I mean, all these different organizations that come in and want. Never mind. I mean, you get a visit from the IRS. That's truly the nightmare scenario. But I'm sure you've all got stories about it. And it needs to stop. It needs to stop. It is completely and utterly 
out of control. In fact, the Mercatus Center, which is a center-right think tank at George Mason University, says that the federal regulatory code right now has, and this is just for rules on apple orchards, okay, has 12,000 rules and regulations in effect for apple picking, my friends. The trees, the apples, you pick them, you eat them, or you sell them. I mean, how... It really, I mean, we're we're pretty much in lemonade stand territory here, right? In terms of the complexity of the commercial transaction, and no offense to lemonade stands, but you see what I'm saying. This is not Dodd Frank high finance global. This is okay. I've got an apple farm. I'd like people to come. I'd like them to be able. I mean, it reminds me of Ron Swanson, you know, the the wonderful character from the show Parks and Rec where he gives his version of commerce, which is, you know, I've got a few apples. Would you like to trade or buy some? There, done, commerce. That's really what this should be. It doesn't have to be more complicated than that, and yet the federal government has 12,000. I mean, think about that. If you and I sat down, if if I got like a, a group of Team Buck experts, we could probably come up with like a few hundred regulations. If we were trying to. I'm not saying it would be a good thing, but at least we get 12,000. How do you have 12,000 regulations about picking apples? Well, the federal code currently for orchards specifically spends 10,400 words to regulate the spraying of pesticides. And I can tell you that somebody who, as part of my living, gets paid to write things and pays attention to word count. That's a lot of words. That's a lot of writing about pesticides just for orchards. The business owner, in this case, the the owner of the orchard, uh, must be proficient, according to the Times here, in 33 precise definitions, including a 45-word description of the term hazard. Uh, This is just... Insanity. Uh, It's absolutely crazy. I mean, I look into the details here and I think how could and even the Times is like, look, you know, there are there is a limit even to our statist meddling. Right. Even the Times here saying maybe having 12000 regulations for an apple orchard is a bad idea. And this is why when Trump is trying to push for a regulatory rollback and has been. It is so important for all of us. It's so important for business. And, you know, this is what you're seeing here. I mean, President Trump, at the beginning of his term, signed an executive order that for every new federal regulation, two had to be rescinded. Um, and this is one of the things that does not get nearly enough attention, does not get nearly enough, I think, uh, it doesn't get nearly enough credit. 12,000 folks. That's how many regulations for an Apple orchard. And that's just insane. Think about what that does. And that's now we start thinking about what's it like for more complicated businesses. I should note it's really anti-competitive as well. Big business loves big government. Big business loves statism. Especially when you're talking about regulatory costs, regulatory burden, all that. There's a reason why there's been so much consolidation of the mega banks and these mega financial institutions. Because for them, yeah, they they can handle the Dodd-Frank regulatory burden. 
might mean more costs for consumers, might mean it affects their the, the bottom line of the corporate entity. But if you're trying to get a small start, you're trying to run a small a, a boutique investment bank, for example, or even a community local bank, uh, hurts you a whole lot more than it does Goldman Sachs, doesn't it? Right? And you can apply that throughout the entire commercial ecosystem to businesses across the board. This is why the White House approach to regulation, it just means that, you know what, the, the, the local apple orchard owner maybe has a shot to stay in business means the local auto body shop owner, the uh, somebody runs a grocery store, somebody runs a whatever your small business may be. You got a shot under this administration. The Obama administration was just telling you to just deal with it. Sorry. You know, we've got, we've got an agenda here. We've got people to please. We've got a media that we need to run stories about how we're cracking down on the lack of recycling in X, Y, or Z industry, right? I mean, this is just, it was insanity. And it's all because of this president and this White House. So I'm going to call it out when I don't like what they're doing. You know, I disagree with this administration on the approach to legalization or their approach when it comes to legalization of marijuana. They're more restrictive and more about enforcement, at least that's what they're saying. But on regulation, you know, it should commerce should be a pretty straightforward thing whenever we can have it that way. And, you know, an apple, an apple orchard should be, hey, I would like to buy some apples. Here is some money for it. And, yeah, don't don't spray anything on it that's going to hurt anybody. And, you know, we can we can make this pretty straightforward, just like with the tax code. Same thing should be true of federal regulations for businesses. Simple, straightforward, universally applied and applicable. That's it. That's it. So regulations doesn't sound like a sexy topic, but to those of you who deal with it, I know you're like, hey, this matters. All right, all right, I know. I, I got to roll into a break here. I got fired up about my apple orchard. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Let me just say, if you've got a story about your business dealing with crazy regulations, would love to hear it. The crazier, the better. Let's beat up on the federal government. Let's beat up on the Leviathan bureaucracy that is out there, the many tentacled octopus that will not leave you alone. Courtesy of Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. A little bit differently because I think there's no question in my mind. That regu- I'm not talking about banks now. The regulations was like a friction cost in society, and it got worse and worse and worse. So in other industries, if I speak to you know, some of my friends in, in, in media, mining, telecom, they're clearly seeing a benefit. We haven't really seen it yet in financial services because the new people just put in place. But, but the American public should think of this as a vast bureaucracy, which is like sand in the engine. And to reduce some of that, not roll back good regulations, not go back to the good old times, not don't, you know, we need to protect consumers, but, you know, bureaucracy is bureaucracy. And the American public knows it when they go to the DMV. Veterans know when they go to the VA. And that's what's been happening more and more in the United States. That's Jamie Dimon speaking to Maria Bartiromo there on Fox. And he's the uh, CEO of J.P. Morgan and is a Democrat. He's a super rich guy, obviously. Uh and he's talking about it. And look, I, I think he's right. You know, I, I think he puts it pretty well. We know what bureaucracy is like. Whenever we deal with it, we hate it. So why do we want bureaucracies more involved in our lives via regulation? Why would we want an apple orchard to get a visit in its busiest season that takes 40 hours of manpower offline for them to make, a, you know, to make a profit, make enough money for people to pay their bills, pay their mortgage, put food on the table? 
We don't. We, we don't want that to happen. We don't want the federal government doing all this crazy stuff. And it really needs a look. I mean, the Obama administration just went nuts with telling the American people what to do all, with everything all over the place. And pushing that back is, is phenomenal. Stephen in Mississippi has got a ridiculous regulation for me. What's up, Stephen? Hello, how are you? I'm good. Okay, uh, what we had to do when they switched over to energy-efficient bulbs, the fluorescent bulbs that we used, we had to buy the same box they came in to store them to send them back to the government rather than just putting them in a a bulb crusher and uh, crushing them and sending them back to a landfill. So you, because of a regulation, you had to recycle your light bulbs and send them back to the government? No, we had to recycle them in the exact same box they came in. In the same box? Why? I don't even know why. They, I don't even know how they think that makes sense. Well, that's what they did, and we had to chain off the area they were in. But we had to put them in the same exact box they came in. So if somebody lost the box, we had to buy the box from GE and then ship it down here to us, put the bulbs in. <laughs> oh, gosh. And send them for recycling. What business, uh, What business, Steve, do you mind telling us? What kind of business? Uh, Petrochem. Petrochem, yeah. Yeah, oh, man. Stephen, thank you so much. Shields High, thank you for calling in with the uh, regulate. Yeah, it's. I mean, I the, the stories people tell me about this stuff, it's insane. By the way, everybody I know who works in finance is like, Dodd-Frank is crazy. Dodd Frank does all kinds of really bad things, but people don't spend as much time thinking about that. All right, we got a lot more. Stay with me. All right, we got Brett in Virginia who's got a dumb federal regulation for me. Brett, lay it on me. Hey, Buck, how are you tonight? I'm good, man. Thank you for calling in. Well, I have a pressure washing business, and I fight both EPA and um, OSHA. So uh, just to give you an example of how crazy the regulations are, um, if we clean a building and we use chemicals, we have to capture that and put it in a sanitary sewer. And I understand that because it's chemicals and we don't want those ruining our water system. Even though I'm conservative, I don't like to do things like that. Yeah, everybody but, actually wants clean water. There's this there's this left-wing myth yeah. out there that people will want to poison, especially the communities they live in, because, you know, the EPA has to save the day or something. It's crazy. Exactly. And, and, and these are people that, I mean, EPA started out at nothing, and now it's a gigantic organization. But here, here's, the, here's the funny part of this thing. So I clean the building with hot water only because... It's easier to do it that way than it is with chemicals. I still have to capture that, that water and, and the dirt and all that comes off of those buildings. I have to take that water, I have to put it in some kind of vessel, and then I have to pump it into grass, dirt, or gravel so that it can then be filtered. And I said to the person who, who was with the state, uh, same as EPA, what happens when it rains? They have no answer. Right, so, so so you're telling me that you are literally using water to clean as your as part of yeah. your business. You're you're using water on yeah. the outside of a building, which exactly. is hit with water when it rains, and you have to treat the water runoff from cleaning the building like you're using 
dangerous or abrasive chemicals or something? Pretty much, pretty close to it. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It has to be filtered through the ground, not through it. So it's not a separate thing, but it has to be filtered through the ground because why? Because it's dirty. So you have special regulations (laughs) for how you dispose of dirty water. It's it's dirty. I mean, does dirty water not go down the the storm drains anyway? Yeah, I would think so. I'm I'm trying to. Wow, okay. that is a well, regulation is so that, dumb I, that I'm having a hard time understanding it, Brett. Well, <laughs> on top of that, I've got the OSHA regulations, and I've got my SDS manuals that I have to keep one in the shop and one in, and and one in each truck. Here's the funny thing: if you buy it in in the store, and I bring it into my office. So let's say you go out and you buy some Windex and put it under your cabinet in the house. Well, that's fine and wonderful. But if I buy that same Windex and put it in my office for my employees to use, I have to have an SDS sheet on that. And for those that don't know what SDS is, it's uh, material safety data sheets. And it explains what it is, what it's made of, and what you do in case this happens or that happens. Open your kitchen cabinet. Yeah. There we go. Brett, great so, examples, man. Thank you for calling in from Virginia. I appreciate okay, it. Great. Shields high, buddy. Have a great and night. keep doing what you do. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's amazing to me when you uh when we uh look at the oh, on the on the apple orchard, the whole farmer situation I was telling you about, I didn't even get into some of those details, just about the the enormous amount of paperwork about everything that happens on the farm all the time. They, they have to, and they go into some crazy examples, uh, you know, anything that happens, they have to document it, paperwork, and probably in duplicate or triplicate and all this stuff. It was a farm. You know, yeah, if somebody gets hit with heavy machinery and they're injured, okay, you document it, right? There's, I, this, this is the th- funny thing about regulation. Sensible regulation is not something that a lot of people have a, have a tough time with, right? It's very easy to understand this. It's just a question of when the regulations become, well, wouldn't this be nice? Or, oh, we have this agenda. Or, oh, we'd like it if that were th- that were happening. I mean, it's just madness. It's just madness. Pollution is a great example, by the way, of how this gets so out of control. There's always this notion that the left thinks that we want to get rid of all regulations and everything because if, if conservatives had had their way, we'd be living in some kind of uh, – you know, Ayn Randian anarchy where only the strong survive and people would be polluting everything. And now nobody actually wants to poison people, really. That's a, I mean, I'm not saying it never happens. I'm just saying that's it's not an active goal of of industry or job or uh, job creators or you know, they don't need to act like everybody's trying to do terrible things all the time. But they do. They, they certainly do. Uh so there's that. So we got some of the regulation stuff in there. I know you. You know how many other people are going to spend time tonight on their radio show or on on their TV show or whatever about regulatory burden, regulatory fatigue, as it is called. Hello, I'm fatigued from the regulations. That's how we roll here, though, on the Freedom Hut. It's, it's, uh, we do educational stuff here as well. You know, not just oh, the country, the country's being destroyed. You know, okay, yeah, anyone can do that. I right? know the country's going down the tubes. You know, okay. This, this, that's fun and all, but there's other things to talk about as well. I, I think I'm going to hold off on my, speaking of fear-mongering, no, but really, I think I'm going to hold off on the discussion about what happens if China stops buying treasuries and maybe starts to unwind some of its treasury positions for a later time. We might even have a, a, an expert guest come on to get into that one, because that's, 
that's how things start to get a little scary. The the debt, which I know nobody really wants to talk about, the debt is still a big problem. It's getting worse all the time. But right now, people don't want to get into it. So, all right, I hear you and all that. I hear that. Switching gears, though, for a second from that whole, I'm going to need you to do a heartbreak with me here. We're going to get away from that for a second. Talk, we're going to take a deep breath, a little, ooh, little stretch it out. I told you before, I got my neck is killing me. So maybe you can take a moment wherever you're listening and just, just do, do yourself a favor. Do a little stretching. It's something I don't do nearly enough of. And I end up hurting myself because I get all tightly wound from reading and writing and researching all the time. It's not, not good for your posture. Uh, the greatest, newest nickname out there, courtesy of Trump, is Sneaky Diane Feinstein. This is what he tweeted out earlier today. The single greatest witch hunt in American history continues. There was no collusion. Everybody, including the Dems, knows there was no collusion. And yet on it goes. Russia and the world is laughing at the stupidity they're witnessing. Republicans should finally take control. Uh, And then he says, wait, where's the sneaky... What does he call her? Sneaky Feinstein. I forget where he, 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 it happened. President Trump's, oh yeah, the fact that Sneaky Dianne Feinstein, who, this is the one I was looking for, the fact that Sneaky Dianne Feinstein, who was on numerous occasions state inclusion, has not been found, would release testimony in such an underhanded and possibly illegal way, totally without authorization, is a disgrace, must have primary. Uh, So, yeah, he calls her Sneaky, Sneaky Dianne Feinstein. Meanwhile, over at uh, MS, MSNBC, here's what uh, Lawrence O'Donnell had to say about the Feinstein testimony transcript. I don't know if we call it a leak, but whatever it was. Here's, what, here's, here's how the left is treating this. What Dianne Feinstein did today was the single most important act by a United States senator since Donald Trump took the oath of office. Nothing less than that. Senator- Stop the hammering. Stop the hammering, Lawrence O'Donnell once said. Uh, I don't know how he could say that's the most important thing ever because, one, there's a lot of redactions in it. So there's a lot that we're still not allowed to know. And I would like to know why. Fusion GPS's work isn't classified because Fusion GPS is a private sector entity working at the behest of a political campaign. So why would there be stuff that were that is not for public view from that? Why will Fusion GPS only testify behind closed doors? Another question that I think we all deserve some answers to. And and how Lawrence O'Donnell comes up with the notion that this is the most important thing that any senator has done under Trump's presidency. I mean, maybe the Senate's not doing a lot of really important stuff. Fine. But it seems to me that Feinstein clearly has an agenda at work here. Some are saying what she did is not even legal. I, I don't know. I didn't I didn't spend time on. Uh, Capitol Hill with regard to these kinds of testimonies. So I can't tell you if it's legal or not, but it seems to me like it quite clearly was intended to have some political effect or impact. So there you have it. Uh, Sneaky Diane Feinstein, the newest of the Trump nicknames, Sneaky Feinstein. Trump is great with the nicknames. I mean, you know, say what you will about the guy. He gives nicknames that stick. Sneaky Diane. All right, uh, 844-900-2825. We'll get into some of the 
some Me Too moment stuff that I think has got a little out of control. Get into that and some other things coming up here. So stay right there. I'll be back. I feel like I could do a whole show just on crazy CNN chirons. Chirons are the little words, uh, you know, little banners at the bottom of the of the TV screen. And there was one a second ago about Yale psychiatrist warning about uh, warning Congress about Trump's mental health. Uh, okay. What exactly are they warning about here? This is not somebody who has not somebody who's actually been able to diagnose and spend time with the president. So it's it's just crazy. They're crazy. They think Trump's crazy. And the truth is they are crazy. Oh, my gosh. They will not let it go. They won't stop. If they don't get them on Russia collusion, they're they're going to try to convince people that that the president um, has that the president is deranged. Meanwhile, the president is doing all kinds of great stuff for the country, including outside of the country too. Here's what he had to say about earlier today about the Korea situation, the North and South Korean standoff, nuclear standoff between Kim Jong Un and the rest of the world. Here's what Trump had to say. I just spoke to President Moon. He's very thankful for what we've done. They're having talks with North Korea. We'll see how that happens. Uh, He felt that the original, that the initial talk was extremely good, had a lot of good comment. Rex was on the phone. And Nikki's been totally briefed. But we had a very, very good conversation and we'll see where it goes he's very thankful for what we've done it was so reported today uh, that we were the ones without our attitude that would have never happened who knows where it leads hopefully it'll lead to success for the world not just for our country but for the world so we've been told by the press for a while that Trump's approach to North Korea, to Kim Jong-un specifically, is antagonistic, could lead to nuclear war. That was the whole that was the whole uh, summary version of what they were saying about Trump's tweets where he called them rocket man and everything. And yet here we are. You have you don't have to just take my word for it. You have the president of South Korea, President Moon Jae-in, said that, quote, Trump deserves big credit for kicking off the first talks between Pyongyang and Seoul in more than two years. North Korea has agreed to send a delegation to the Winter Olympics next month. Now, I'm very sober-minded about this. I'm very forthright with you all. I know that this could just be a North Korean head fake or a North Korean ploy, but... It is also the first time in two years that there has been any real talking between North and South Korea, and it happens to be occurring right after a series of decisions by the Trump administration to implement more powerful sanctions against North Korea. And also Trump saying, look, you know, if you want to play rough, you know, little man in North Korea, uh, guess what? A rocket man, uh, you know, I can play rougher. When you're talking about a regime like North Korea where the cult of personality is absolute and absolutist, when you're looking at a truly totalitarian society like that where the leader is worshipped in an almost godlike status, that somebody would challenge him so directly in this way, we've been told will 
only result in a heightened chance of, of, of an actual nuclear exchange, nuclear war with North Korea, which they may get off a couple of missiles, but there won't be any North Korea left afterwards, as we all know. So that's not a war they would win. It's not a war anybody wants either, but it's a war we would finish. And we've been told, though, you, you can't you can't hit back at the bully publicly this way. It's it's uh, crazy. What, <laughs> there's that word again. You know, it's irresponsible what Trump is doing. Meanwhile, you got the president of South Korea, who I think knows a whole lot more about North Korea, South Korean relations and the military situation than all these different pundits and journalists and such running around sharing their opinions on this, who's saying that uh, President Trump deserves a lot of credit here for taking action, for doing something, for forcing North Korea's hand. And is, is this something that's getting into coverage? No, no, of course not. There's also been this uprising in Iran, which if you go back and look at the if you look at what the conventional wisdom of the foreign policy echo chamber has been on these two problems, remember the two states left from what Bush described as the axis of evil, right? It was Iraq, Iran, North Korea. And now Iraq's gone, not, no longer on the axis of evil, not that it's gone as a place, uh, but Iran and North Korea still remain very serious problems for the United States. And yet, the foreign policy consensus from the people who think they know about these things in the media, at least, and from the former Obama administration officials who just make they really make a mockery of themselves on a regular basis. These uh, foreign policy bros that work for Obama that are running around. You can see some of them on Twitter and stuff. And the, the, but the wisdom has been, oh, well, because Trump was uh, being. Well, because he's been critical of the Iran nuclear deal, the people of Iran have rallied behind the regime. That was like a month ago. People they were writing that the New York Times and other. That was the storyline. Oh, their their Trump's re- refusal to play by Obama's rules when it comes to Iran is just making everything worse. Meanwhile, we've seen an uprising against the regime, and not just against any one particular small policy the regime is, has been doing in, in Iran, but against the, the entirety of it, the whole the mullocracy, the whole thing, the mullahs running the show, the Iranian Islamist revolution. They're like, this is all crap. We're sick of it. It's bad. We don't want this anymore. Oh, I guess all the foreign policy consensus about Trump on this was, was not right, huh? The same thing's going on here with North Korea. Oh, Trump, you can't do that. You can't say those mean things about Kim Jong-un. Uh, so we're just supposed to sit around and, and let... By the way, it's a big propaganda tool for the North Koreans that Kim Jong-un gets his way, gets away literally with murder, but Kim Jong-un gets his way with the international community, doesn't suffer consequences, slaps out at countries that are much bigger, more powerful than him, including the United States. And, you know, there's, there's no real pushback. Well, Trump is calling him out, basically calling him a punk and saying, look, the, the, the door to negotiation and diplomacy is open. But if you want to be a punk, we, we can we can treat you like one. And people say, oh, foreign policy is so bad. Meanwhile, like I said, the president of South Korea is looking at this saying, mm, actually, Trump knows uh, knows something that all the Obama experts from that eight years of foreign policy disaster. Trump seems to know something they don't know. Well, like like others have been pointing out, they can call Trump crazy till they're blue in the face. But from everything we see so far, 
If Trump is crazy, my friends, he is crazy like a fox. We'll be right back. Let's talk about the latest with the Me Too movement, shall we? Let's discuss some stories that uh, fall into this category of uh, the movement against sexual harassment and uh, the all, all the different iterations of this now. There are a few things coming together, different perspectives on this that I would like to spend some time working through with you. First of all, there there's... Well, in a way, this touches on the Me, the Me Too movement, which, as, as you know, is about w- women who are sharing their stories of harassment or assault. Or, but it, it has been also used in politicized ways already, as any political movement would be. It has been used by some to grandstand. It has been appropriated for the self-interest of different individuals at different times. So... We're going to look at this from different uh, perspectives. You got Mark Wahlberg, whom I have to say has has grown on me as a, as an actor. I, I like him more now than I used to. I like a, I like a fair amount of his movies um, in the earlier day. I was not a Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch fan. It's some of the, yeah, you're old enough to remember. You know what I'm talking about. You know, uh, I can't even remember the the songs, but. Mark Wahlberg has has matured as a, as an actor as a performer, and I think he's done a he's done a good job. But uh, good wait, good vibrations was Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch really? That's actually a pretty good song. Maybe I take that back. Anyway, uh, Marky Mark, I'm sorry, Mark. Part I did not mean to do that. Mark Wahlberg, who is a very big box office draw, was part of the reshoots for the All the Money in the World movie. Now, All the Money in the World. Uh, had to be reshot because of a Me Too movement moment in which it came out that Kevin Spacey had uh, tried to engage in a sexual encounter with a, an actor, male actor, who at the time was was uh, underage, under the age of consent in the state of New York. And that got him in a whole lot of trouble. And he has he's one of these people now who's who's been uh, outed and his career outed as a predator. And his career is obviously I don't know if you'd say it's totally done, but never going to be the same. The guy's uh, off the show House of Cards, which I have to say, the first season was entertaining. A very overrated show. I, I couldn't even make it through the third season. But anyway, but he's now. He's been one of these people who has uh, gotten in a whole lot of trouble because of what he it is allegedly. Remember, this has not been proven in a court of law, but allegedly did a long time ago and or tried to do a long time ago. Uh, And Mark Wahlberg had to be part of the reshoot because they had to take Kevin Spacey out of the movie. Well, the big issue here is that it's come out and it's being made a big issue by the media that Mark Wahlberg got paid $1.5 million for the reshoot of the movie that was necessary. The reshoot was necessary because they had to, they scrubbed Kevin Spacey from the movie, literally removed him in post-production and, and used another actor's face. Like he, they, it's pretty amazing technologically. They removed him from the movie. He got paid one, $1.5 million. Michelle Williams, uh, got paid a thousand dollars. It has been reported, which, you know, that's a big. That is a big pay differential, but a few things about this, and it's, and people are saying that see this is yet again the you know equal work equal pay thing, fair pay, me too, all all this different stuff, all this 
gender inequality political movement gets tied into this right away. And I would just say, look, I haven't looked too deeply into the details here. I don't have access to the contracts they sign. I don't know. But from what I understand, well, a couple of things. One is that I know that Mark Wahlberg uh, was or is a much bigger actor in terms of being a box office draw than Michelle Williams is. That's just a fact. I think Wahlberg's movies have grossed in the last couple of years close to a billion dollars. Michelle Williams' movies have not grossed close to a billion dollars. And movie making is a business. Not a business that is necessarily conducted very well a lot of times in terms of the bottom line. A lot of mistakes are made. A lot of bad movies get made. But Mark Wahlberg is a, is a box office draw. It's about the I don't know much of the lingo here, but I know that's something they say. He's a box office draw. Michelle Williams, not so much. I I do have to. Say, I thought my week with Marilyn, which Michelle Williams starred in, for those of you who are looking for a movie to watch that you may have been off your radar, I thought that was a very good movie. And I don't just say movies here are bad. So you can you know those of you who are already writing out those emails, you can stop. I, there are lots of movies that I love. I just like to call out movies that people like for the wrong reasons, particularly reasons of politics or you know it's everyone's supposed to like a movie, so we're all told it's so great. But I like to be the one who says no, it's actually not good. Don't even get me started on Avatar and how terrible it is, or I'll be here all night. Uh, that's the first example that came to mind because I saw, I think they're making a second one, which is just, it's just ugh, it's like a form of torture. Avatar was horrible. Um, but Mark Wahlberg paid $1.5 million. Michelle Williams not paid as much. He's a much bigger actor than she is as this, as this stuff goes. Now, I understand the immediate response you get there is, Buck, he's not, he's not a thousand times more valuable than she is. And that's true, right? I mean, she she is a pretty well-known actress. And like I said, the movie, My Week of Maryland, is a very good movie. I think you should go go check it out. Um, but it's, uh, it's also a, an example of, well, did she just say she would do it for free? Because if she agreed to do it for free, it's not an equal pay disparity sexual discrimination thing. It's just as she said she'd do it for free. He demanded money. I mean, there is a what the market will bear component of all this discussion as well. But as you can see, there's an immediate you got pay disparity between a man and a woman. It must be because of sexism. Well, it could be. But in this case, he's a bigger actor. And what was the terms of her agreement? You know, if somebody's just better at negotiating a deal for themselves than somebody else, I don't think it's fair to always just suggest or to 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 assume that it's about sexism. Uh, then you have another case, another Me Too situation here. And this one's also a little, I'm, I'm illustrating it to make a point, but I don't know all that. No one knows all the details yet, but here's what's going on. James Franco, whom I do not like as an actor, don't know him as a person, doesn't matter. Don't like him as an actor. Find him to be very self-satisfied and annoying and, and don't like his whole shtick. But he was on the Stephen Colbert show last night. And while he was on the Stephen Colbert show, it came. It, Colbert apparently, by the way, I don't, is, is he really is he a comedian anymore? Or is he a political commentator who makes jokes sometimes? I think we know that Colbert is really just hashtag resistance comedian who sometimes is making jokes, but is, is also doing a lot of finger wagging and moral preening and grandstanding and just trying to appeal to the coastal anti-Trump audience as much as he can. 
Guy is not funny. I mean, his show stinks. And I really, and, and I mean that with all my heart. His show stinks. Uh, I'm sure they pay him like $20 million a year to stink, though. So that's a good gig. And he, though, sat down with James Franco. He told Franco he was going to bring this up. Franco was at the, I was going to say the Oscars, but it's the Golden Globes. And he was all—he was also with the whole Me Too thing. I forget. He he wore either wore something or he was part of the Me Too movement in some way there at the Golden Globes, where he had all these actresses who, you know, couldn't say a peep. Some of them about Harvey Weinstein, you know, when it would have really mattered. But now everybody's a you know now everybody's a hero. Now everybody okay. Uh, but Wahlberg, I'm sorry, uh, Franco has had a few actresses come out and call him out publicly on on Twitter. Uh, call him out on social media to say that there's something, this guy did some bad stuff. And I would just note that here is his response. He was asked about this by Stephen Colbert. Here's how Franco responded uh, to all this. There were some things on Twitter. um, Today. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I haven't read them. I've heard about them. Um, Okay, first of all, I don't, I have no idea what I did to Ali Sheedy. I directed her in a a playoff Broadway. I had nothing but a great time with her. Uh, 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 total respect for her. I had no. I have no idea why she was upset. She took the tweet down. I don't. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't speak for her. I don't know. Um, the others look. In my life, I I pride myself on taking responsibility for things that I've done. I have to do that to maintain my uh, well being. Uh, I do it whenever I know that that there's something wrong or needs to be changed. I make it a point to do it. The things that I heard that were on Twitter um, are not accurate. Um, but I completely support people coming out and being able to have a voice because I didn't have a voice for so long. So I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, shut them down in any way. It's, it's I think, a, a, a good thing and I support it. All right, so I I know, let me just say, I know none of the facts here. I mean, nobody does really, right, except for James Franco and his accusers. So I, I'm, not, I'm not passing judgment on whether what any woman has claimed about Franco is true or not. I have no idea, and that's not, for now, I just, I want to look at another aspect of this. So just put that aside. And, and I don't like Franco, as I told you, as an actor, but that shouldn't affect any of my judgment here anyway. Because uh, that's just as an actor, and who cares? That doesn't matter. Here's the thing. If you're accused of sexual misconduct as, as, a, as a guy and you know, as a public figure, you know, if you're James Franco, I feel like you, you got to go one of two. There's got to be one of two things going on here. Either you messed up and you better admit. And I don't know how severe this stuff is we're talking about it. I don't know if this is just harassment comments. I don't, but I'm just trying to get at what seems to me to be a troubling trend here. You're, you know, you either did some stuff or you didn't do some stuff. And if you didn't do anything really wrong, you know, if you didn't uh, cross lines, if the accusations, as he says there, he says, well, it's not accurate. If they're untrue, you should be able to say those are lies and it's terrible that people would lie about me in that way. And if they are lies, you shouldn't then have to say on top of it, but, you know, I don't want to, you could see he was very, he's very sort of, it was a weird interview, right? The whole thing was kind of what, you know, it's either true or it's not. 
If it's not true, you shouldn't then, and like I said, I'm not passing judgment on it being true or not, but if it's not true, as a guy, you shouldn't have to stand up there or sit there and say, but, you know, I, I really support the movement and everything. Well, hold on a second. These are not related things. This is about you, buddy. This is about James Franco. Did James Franco do bad stuff? If James Franco did bad stuff, he should be held to account and he should be saying sorry at a minimum. Again, I don't know how serious the stuff is. But if it's not true, I really am troubled by the notion that now as a public figure, as a guy, when something's not true, if it's not true, you still have to be like, but I really appreciate these women coming forward to share. No, 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 no. This, we're not getting this thing of like everybody has their truth. I'm sorry. And Stephen Colbert went on to say, you know, how do we adjudicate between different, I didn't play that audio for you, but between different perceptions of events or something. Like, oh, there's right and there's wrong. You know, the, the, you either did bad stuff or you didn't. And if somebody's lying about you, you should be able to call that out without fear of seeming insensitive about the rest of the movement. You see, what's happened is that the individual's rights to to be able to get to the truth, to be able to defend themselves, that is being suppressed because now it's like you're anti-the movement, the Me Too movement, if you seem like you're too forcefully denouncing what are what would be false accusations here, right? If, in fact, they're false. But I think you see what I'm saying. It's It's troubling to see somebody who clearly is taking issue at some level with some of the accusations, and he, and he has this impulse, you know, oh, I think it's still, you know, I still want to say that, you know, I'm so so respectful of the movement, it's all so good and everything else. I mean, if he's caught and he's in trouble, yeah, then I understand why he's saying it, but if he didn't do anything, why has he got to say all that stuff? You know what I mean? All right, there's also some other folks out there who, uh, a very famous actress who's saying, this Me Too thing has gotten out of hand. So I want to talk to you about that, but I'll have you have to stay with me through the break, and I'll give you the details. Stay right there. So I'm assuming a, a, a bunch of you, fair number, you probably know an actress by the name of Catherine Deneuve, who was really the most famous French actress of her generation, but was but was globally known, a very very famous French a- actress, um, and she has signed a letter with over 100 other French women in entertainment. And it's a public letter that is just straight up denouncing the French counterpart, because now this has spread, this has become a global phenomenon, at least in the West, this whole Me Too movement. The French counterpart movement is called uh, Balance ton porc, Expose Your Pig, which is just a public shaming of any guy who, in the entertainment industry particularly, has acted in an untoward fashion uh, when it comes to women. That's the idea. But the the uh, 100 women writing this letter wrote the following. Rape is a crime, but insistent or clumsy flirting is not a crime, nor is gallantry a chauvinist aggression. As a result of the Weinstein affair, there has, a, has been a legitimate realization of the sexual violence women experience, particularly in the workplace, where some abuse, uh, some men abuse their power. It was necessary. But now this liberation of speech has been turned on its head. Uh, these women are saying, look, this is this can't be the, the new normal can't just be. And I don't know. Again, I mentioned the Franco case. I don't know the details of whether that looks particularly bad for him or not. 
but the new normal is that if your name turns up on some list, and there have been lists circulated, and or if your name comes out in the press as a sexual harasser, you, you know, the, the pressure is so strong to push you out right away. And I should note, this also is going to have ramifications when it comes to Main Street businesses, too. Not just, you know, not just uh, stuff out in Hollywood and, and in politics and in the media, news media. But it's going to be the, the case now. It's going to be corporate culture. You know, nobody's going to want to have the po- No one's going to want the bad press for we didn't take care of that harasser right away. And I'm not saying that anybody should be standing up for guys who are doing bad stuff. I'm just saying that we should always look at every individual should have the right to prove his innocence. Right? Every individual should have a right to at least some semblance of, of due process, including with their public image and their, their reputation. I mean, your reputation is everything now, as you know, in business and, and in corporate America and just a- any professional capacity. Your reputation is everything. And because of the Internet now, all of our reputations follow us everywhere. So this letter from these 100 French women has the following, quote, This expedited justice already has its victims. Men prevented from practicing their professions as punishment, forced to resign while the only thing they did wrong was touching a knee, trying to steal a kiss or speaking about intimate things at a work dinner or sending messages with sexual connotations to a woman whose feelings were not mutual. End quote. So, you know, I've been warning about this for a while because it's obvious this was going to happen. But it's true. I mean, somebody else needs to stand up and say, you know, if somebody leans in for a kiss and, you know, it's uh, unrequited or, you know, it's not the response is, hey, no, I don't think of you that way or we work together. We shouldn't. The guy backs off and is like, I'm sorry, I misunderstood the situation and then continues to be a, you know, a, a respectful human being and a professional. Doesn't make him a bad guy. Actually just makes him a guy. That's the truth. That's that's going to happen. I mean, I'm assuming the guy's not married and the woman's not married. and everything, But, you know, just makes him a guy. And that's been kind of lost in all this. You know, this is people are saying some some pretty uh, disconcerting stuff about, oh, you know, somebody made a comment, you know, a long time ago. Look, you know, this woman who wrote this whole piece about um, Matt Lauer. Yeah, Matt Lauer is married and he's gross and, and he is a pig and he should have been tossed a long time ago. But. You know, she chose to have an affair with this guy. And there was never any, like, you better or else. It was just, you know, he caught her eye, she caught his eye, and then then off into the break room they went. I mean, it's bad behavior, to be sure, but that's not in the same category like the Weinstein stuff, and that woman is not some martyr for the call. I, I, you know, I don't know. Uh, this is... This has gotten out of control. These uh, The French women see it that way, that sign this letter at least. So there's that. Uh, we want to talk about the Obama Presidential Library. saw the first drawings of it today. We can discuss that. It's a library apparently that's not going to have any books. I mean that. That's what they're saying. We'll be back. Oprah Winfrey for president. Your oh, thoughts. You know, it wasn't that a fabulous speech? And hearing Oprah's voice... And her energy and her passion and her determination, it's inspiring. Is the country hungry for another mega-celebrity billionaire? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Elizabeth Warren, not sure if Oprah's 
uh, Oprah's the, the the next president of the United States or not. I don't know why. I just want to play this because I want to make fun of Elizabeth Warren mostly. And also, uh, Alison Camerata, hello. Hey, Alison. Uh, but then you had Elizabeth Warren there, too. Oh, wasn't that speech just amazing? Oh, gosh, it was so good. <laughs> uh, she's about as charming as Hillary, that Elizabeth Warren. About as charming as Hillary, which is, is saying quite something, isn't it? Uh, I like that Trump said that he would beat Oprah, but then he's like, I like Oprah. Oprah's cool. So, you know, he Trump's, Trump's a good guy. Everyone needs to calm down, you know? Come out to the coast, have a few laughs. It's not that bad. You can hang out with Trump. It's good, everyone, you know? I know you know, but people don't listen to the show. We need more Democrats to listen to the show. We can convert them here. This is like a Democrat conversion tank, you know? We can convert Democrats here to, to being not even Republicans, just being sane people who, who understand politics and the world around them better. Maybe that should be something we take on here, a special project, the, uh, the Freedom Hut Conversion Project. We, we convert Democrats to uh, conservatives or Republicans. See, I, don't, I, I hope we've kind of moved past that. For a while, and it was so much more fashionable to say conservative than Republican. I'm like, yeah, I know conservatism is the ideology. Republican is the party. But, you know, come on, right? Yeah, we're parsing a little bit. It reminds me of people who are like, well, this is not a democracy. It's a republic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when we say, you know, our democracy, we mean that in kind of a general way, right? People are about to email me. No, we don't. I know, I know. Same thing. All right. Uh, so well, I told you I was going to talk about something else, and then I just wanted to play the uh, war. Oh, yeah, the Obama Presidential Library. <laughs> How could I forget? Uh, the The latest on that is that there's a a uh, schematic, a drawing that's out to show the Obama. It's this very large. It looks like a it really looks like a monument more than a library. Um, maybe that's intentional. But here's what the Fox is reporting on this. The Obama Foundation is taking an unconventional approach to the Presidential Center and Library being planned in Chicago. It's opting to host a digital archive of President Barack Obama's records, but not keep his hard copy manuscripts and letters and other documents on site. That means no thumbing through the ex-president's correspondence on the health care fight or first drafts of a State of the Union address, end quote. Okay, so maybe I'm missing something here, but if you're going to have just a digital storage facility of Obama's presidential documents i think that's called a computer what am i missing you don't need an enormous building if you're not actually going to keep stuff in it ah but sure enough i'm sure there there will be uh there will be some stuff in the obama presidential library it just kind of it seems kind of fitting in a weird way doesn't it that the uh, obama administration's uh building dedicated towards books and and study and transparency is actually going to be a digital archive, and that means they're going to use it for other stuff. <laughs> it's it's not going to be a library, per se. It's going to be a huge building uh, built to the greatness of Obama and his administration without books in it. It's going to be a lot of, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what they're going to keep there. I mean, look, we all know this, right? D- data storage on uh, in, in the digital era, you know, you could fit all the all the Obama documents on one computer pretty easily probably on a thumb drive i don't know how good the thumb drive is but anyway this is just kind of a random thing they got going on there now we've also got uh we got this video from i think i have time to do this too before we uh close up shop and the freedom hut come up here shortly got this video changing gears here from uh campus reform 
And is this an Ami Horowitz? Is this Ami's? Ami Horowitz? No, no, oh, different, different video. Sorry. Ami, high five. We'll get your stuff on later on in the week. Ami sent me an email today. I'm getting confused. Uh, I like Ami. Ami's got, uh, he's got gusto. But uh, we got this video from Campus Reform, also a great group, uh, asking Antifa, Antifa! We need to get that drop. We need to have that ready to go whenever we can. Trump with Antifa. I'll, I'll pull that. Antifa! But you got a bunch of people uh, being asked by campus reform who are, they're so-called anti-fascists on campus. What is fascism? A great question to ask anti-fascists. Here's what they said. How would you define what fascism is? Uh, I don't know. How would you define fascism? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) It's, It's not an easy thing to define. How would you define fascism? Um, I don't really want to get into all of that history and stuff. I mean, you can't define it, though. I don't want to talk about it right now. Fascism is an increasingly upward, um, hierarchical model that that puts white people and European, European people at the top. I I would like to take their platform away. That sounds kind of fascist. Um, I'm not the government. Yeah, I'm not sure if you you really can call any of that a definition or even a vague understanding of what what we would say. Yeah, I, I don't think, uh, yeah, I don't think they have any idea what fascism is. I think that Antifa is supposed to be cool, and because Antifa is supposed to be cool, they want to be a part of it, and they know that Antifa is anti-Trump. Even though Trump is a fascist, in what way exactly? Well, they can't, how can they know? Because they don't know what fascism is. I thought that was funny, too. It's, it putting European people at the top, it's like, well, so fascism in Italy, yeah, I mean, it, it was about, you know, ultra-nationalism for Italians, but, you know, it was a political system inside of, of Europe. I mean, they, they have no idea what they're talking about, none whatsoever, which is not surprising, but you'd think they might teach, they might teach the kids on a college campus something about fascism. I mean, I would tell you that in my day, as a poli-sci major, and I, I trash poli-sci as a major on a pretty regular basis just because I like to. Uh, if you had asked me about, you know, what's a, de- what's a working definition of communism? What's a working definition of fascism? If it wasn't picture perfect, it would have been good enough, you know? It would have gotten close. Uh, but these days, just to be a part of the movement, just to see these people dressing in all black and opposing Trump, that's what it's really about. And I even, re- I even downloaded, I read that book, the uh, Anti-Fascist Handbook, which is pretty long, I got to say, and and pretty delusional in some of its stances. But it does go into the history of anti-fascism, which was kind of interesting. So there's even a book written by a leftist for these leftists. They can download it on Kindle. They may, might maybe even get a student discount. No idea whatsoever. Uh, it's just all about what's politically fashionable, my friends. That's that's what drives so much of this. Uh, I'm going to go roll into a quick break here. When I come back, we're going to Close up the Freedom Hunt. Maybe talk a little about the Shields High podcast, which is amazing. Please check that out when you get a chance on iTunes or on the iHeart app. iTunes, you can subscribe. Shields High, just type it in and uh, share it with a friend. We'll be right back. And I was just telling the team here before that you, you know you're, you're getting up there. I'm I'm 36 now, and this morning I thought I had it all figured out. You know, I had a very busy but productive day planned. Woke, woke up feeling good, ready to go. I uh, was in Baltimore yesterday, got in late last night. And sure enough, I, I reach up because I did a, a hit on Fox News this morning to talk. Some of you may have seen it, to talk about 
the encryption debate, and I managed. I, I I feel like I think I heard something like a pop, but that just might be my my mind playing tricks on me. But I reached up and something along the side of my neck. It felt like someone stabbed me with a knife. And then I started thinking about all these things that I'm told, like you need to do more yoga, you need to stretch. You know, you're can't just go out there weekend warrior doing your lifting the weights and stuff and not do some stretching. And it's true. I, I don't stretch enough. Yoga, I always feel like I'm about to have a heart attack during, so that's probably not a... I'm not sure that's a thing that I should really push too much, because it's just for me, for whatever reason, being still and quiet makes me feel more anxious. Maybe one of the reasons I love radio so much is that it's constant thought and action, and that you're talking and thinking and talking and thinking, and, and it goes on for a while. Unlike TV, which is like, you're on, talk for 30 seconds, you're done. It's a very different... Very different approach. But, yeah, I, I pulled something nasty in, in my neck, um, which is great, though, because when I get home later, I'll just be like, Ms. Molly, can I have a neck rub, please? And she'll be like, I, I worked hard all day, too, buddy. Go. You can go rub your own neck. So uh, what was I going to do? Oh, on the – I didn't really get into this because it doesn't seem to be uh, catching a lot of uh, the attention in the headlines today. But on that dispute between law enforcement and the tech companies – that I talked about on Fox today, this morning on America's Newsroom. Uh, Sandra Smith and Bill Hemmer are, are two of the two of the greats, really great people in the news media business, by the way. But the debate's really interesting. It's one of the few places I find myself really going back and forth between, well, which side of this is, which side has the stronger argument. So here's the, the summary version of it, uh, and it's... And this, hopefully this isn't the Aleve talking, because I took some of that earlier today. I know I'm whining a lot. I am whining a lot, but this is what happens. You come, you hang out with me in the hut, and I'm going to whine to all of you. Uh, the, the, uh, the people who are worried about encryption on devices, right? They refer to this as the going dark, the quote, going dark phenomenon. And law enforcement, FBI, current FBI director Ray and, and previous F- FBI director Comey, boo, uh, they say that they've had a few thousand, I forget the exact number, it's under 10,000, but it's in the thousands of instances where law enforcement wanted access to a device of some kind that they just couldn't break the encryption on. And it brought their it brought their um, investigation to a standstill, if not maybe to a total halt. So they're saying, look, we need a way that we can get into not just the device now, but also end-to-end encryption. Because it's become very easy to download and and get an app that encrypts your information. You send it to somebody else, it's encrypted on their device too. So I believe, and I'm not a a tech expert by any means, but I believe that that means that the, the usual weak point of communication that law enforcement had an easy time exploiting for investigation purposes is that when you send something... It can, you know, they know where they know where it went through. They know what time. They know what it was. Very, very easy, right? But if it's encrypted and they can't break that encryption, now you got a real problem because it's not just oh, I can't get into someone's device to see their photos or see what they've stored on their device. It's people can now communicate without law enforcement necessarily being able being able to get into it. Now, big question then the questions that I have, and I'm not sure we could ever really get answers to this. When they say that it brings them to a, a halt or a standstill, do they mean they 
can't get in at all. The FBI can't get in at all to the encryption or, uh, you know, the device or that it's hard, that it's annoying. I think that's a very important distinguishing characteristic. Uh, that's not something I'm sure the FBI is going to tell us one way or the other. You remember the San Bernardino case when that horrible jihadist terror attack in California, a whole bunch of people shot and killed at a, a holiday party by two jihadists in this country. Uh, they couldn't get into the device, but then eventually, and they wanted to make Apple do it, then they found a way in anyway. So that's that's an example, I think, of what we're going to see here, which is that if they really want to get in, I believe law enforcement, the federal government's going to find a way to get in, but they want to be able to get in easily. And the other side of this, though, so that that's the going dark phenomenon, is that you're going to have, uh, you know, child sex traffickers, terrorists, I mean, the worst of the worst of the worst, being able to hide their uh, information and hide their communications from law enforcement in a way that will make all of us less safe. That's the case for the, that's why going dark is, is such a problem. The other side, you have the backdoor phenomenon, which is what Apple and uh, Facebook and Amazon, all these, all the different mega, as well as some more boutique ones that specialize in encryption and in the creation of encryption apps and everything else. They're saying, okay, so what you're what you're telling us, federal government, is that our entire business model is premised uh, along the lines of creating safe and secure information storage and transfer, and you want us to put purposefully put holes, back doors, into that technology. And they're like, look, there's no way that we can put because what they always say is it's not like. Uh, Facebook, or in better cases, Apple, right? Because their encryption is really, really excellent. It's not like Apple saying, oh, we could get into that guy's phone, but we won't, FBI, sorry. Apple saying, we can't do it because we build it so that we can't do it. It's almost like this is a locksmith, and uh, the locksmith is saying, yeah, I don't keep keys. I I make a key for somebody and give them the key. I don't keep a set of their keys in case somebody else wants to get into their apartment later. The FBI is like, oh, no, locksmith, you have to make a a master key for everything that we can get whenever we want. You know, I think when you put it in those terms, that analogy is pretty apt here. And not only is that creating a backdoor that the FBI or the federal government can use whenever it wants you know, and there's a lot. Of, we start to see, to see this with the counterintelligence investigation with Trump and uh, Russia and all that stuff. There's a lot of ways that your Fourth Amendment rights can be abused. And the federal government has not been good about this, really, in the post 9-11 Patriot Act era. There, there's been some abuse. There's been some problems. Uh, but even beyond that, it's like creating a weak spot in the security system that can be exploited by anybody else. So not only is the FBI telling Apple, oh, we need you to be able to get into this when we tell you with a court order to, but it means that somebody else, some third party, I don't know, Russian or North Korean hackers, they can look for that weakness and exploit it, and they can get into your stuff and erase all your data or, or steal all your funds. Because the FBI wants a, you know wants an easier time getting into a few thousand, you know, a, a few thousand phones over there it's a this is a tough call i really i view it as a as a tough call i don't see an easy answer here so that's uh 
That was from this morning on Fox. In case you missed it, I should have probably gotten a copy of the clip to put up on Facebook. By the way, the Shields High podcast is doing very well. It's getting the folks over here at the Freedom Hut and uh, at at uh, Premier Radio, which is my syndicator, which is the company I work for here at iHeartMedia, uh, getting them very excited about things. And it's all because of you. Um, so thank you so much for downloading and also spreading the word. But please continue to do so. It is very time intensive and resource intensive. Every single download of that show counts. If, if each person listening to this live broadcast right now took uh, 20 seconds to just share a it's a history podcast, as you know, I'm not it's not a history, blah, 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 you know, Trump, Russia, blah, blah, blah. No, it's a history podcast. If each person listening, though, sent that link from iTunes or shared it on their Facebook page, uh, share the Shields High podcast, we'd be. Uh, among the biggest history podcasts out there by tomorrow, if everybody listening did that. And we're already doing very well, and I just want to say thank you for that. But please continue to download, to listen. New episode coming out Monday, this coming Monday, and the following Monday. We're lo- I'm shooting to do at least uh, one full season of Mondays of the Shields High podcast. It's going to be a whole bunch of episodes. But I need you to keep pushing it for me, team. So thank you for that. Uh, do check out all of our latest by following at facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. And tomorrow, already got a fun show planned for you, so be sure to join me for that. As always, no matter what, Shields High.